0: I'm going to start out by reading the unauthorized Wakefield Children's flannel graph version of the story of Noah and the flood. Let me say that again. I'm going to put this on screen for you because it's not exactly what you've got in your Bibles, okay? Nobody's Bible does. Maybe the message comes close. This is the unauthorized Wakefield Children's flannel graph version of the story of Noah and the flood. Don't worry, we'll get to the real thing in just a minute here. Here it is. Noah was a good man who loved God. But everybody else in the world hated God and didn't follow his rules, so the Lord was going to send a flood. So the Lord told Noah to build him an anarchy. We're missing a Y there for next service, by the way. So Noah built a big, big boat, one as big as Nealon Stadium, where we're trying to teach this to kids around here who would understand that scope. Relax, it's the Wakefield Unauthorized Version. So Noah built a big, big boat so that he and his family and all the animals would get out of the boat and as they saw God's colorful rainbow as a promise that God would never again flood the earth. There's something wrong with the verbiage. Please fix that for the next service. That's the Wakefield Unauthorized Children's Version of the story of Noah and his ark. Now, listen, if you were anything like me as a kid, well, first, I'm sorry. No, I'm just if you were anything like me as a kid, then you probably grew up learning about this story on one of these. Flannel graph. Who here remembers good old flannel graph? Some of y'all remember it. Some of y'all taught on it. Some of y'all probably cut out those figurines before they were color cardboard and you made it yourself and put the felt on so it would stick. You probably remember learning about Noah's Ark from a flannel graph. <laughs> you see kids, those of you who may not have, have experienced the flannel graph before the days of iPad, we had these things. They were called uh, paper, scissors, <laughs> crayons. Uh, what, what, is, what are scissors? Uh, it's that icon on your screen. So you probably remember learning about Noah's Ark and the flood on something like this, which is fine, that's okay, but there are some limitations to the children's sanitized flannel graph version of these Bible stories, especially the story of Noah and the flood, and here's the basic problem. We'll get into you know, the problem with Noah specifically in a bit. But the basic problem is that the flannel graph version never seems to include some really important details that the Bible includes. As a kid, if you're listening to the flannel graph version, you always got a somewhat sanitized version of the account of Noah and the flood. Now, today, as we're talking about Noah's Ark and the flood, uh, one of the worst offenders is this story of Noah and the flood. When it comes to the sanitized flannel graph version, it's one of the worst offenders for taking out some of the details. Some of you know comedian Tim Hawkins. He has this funny bit about what it would look like if instead of giving the sanitized versions of Bible stories to our kids, he has this funny bit about what it might look like if we didn't. So let's let's watch this it's just about a minute, Come on, long. man. There's some beautiful stuff in the Bible. There's some stuff in there. You got to admit, it's not what we can call family friendly. Think about it. There's a reason you don't see some of those illustrations in the precious moments Bible. You don't see Cain and Abel in the precious moments. The in that pressure. So I got never understand parents who will paint Noah's Ark on their kids, little kids' bedroom walls. It doesn't make sense. Noah's Ark's a great story, but it's just out there, man. It's like, Daddy, what are you doing? I'm painting Noah's Ark on your wall, sweetheart. My favorite story. You know where God sends a worldwide flood to kill every living thing? Yeah. I love it. It's awesome. Hey, grab a brush and paint some screaming people on that rock for me just to make it real. It's going to be great. Look in the baby's room. I painted the stoning of Stephen. You're going to love that. (laughs) It's okay to laugh in church, by the way. God created humor. It's okay. Some of y'all still struggle with that. This is is an addendum to the story that we're going with here. I tell you, some of y'all still struggle with that. Chill out relax. It's okay to laugh. Back to Noah. Noah was a good man who loved God. That's what the sanitized version of this says not uh, we'll put this on screen again for you to hear to see in just a second here the Wakefield unauthorized children version it goes something like this this is how we tell the story Noah was a good man who loved God but everybody else in the world hated God and didn't follow his rules so the Lord was going to send a flood so the Lord told Noah to build him an archie archie and Noah built a big boat one as big as Nealon Stadium so that he and his family and all the animals could be rescued from the flood. So then one day after the floods went down, Noah and his family and all the animals got out of the boat and they saw God's God's colorful rainbow as a promise that God would never again flood the earth. We can take that down, thanks. At which point all the kids hearing the story say, Isn't that nice of God? Aren't rainbows nice? Isn't that nice of God? I like rainbows. Rainbows are nice. The story is about salvation. Noah and his family and the animals are indeed saved. The problem, though, with telling the story that way is that it misses a key element of what the Bible has to say to us if we are to hear the Word of God rightly. And friends, children's stories often ignore the reality, let's be frank, children's stories often ignore the reality that sin condemns us to death. So my question is, are we telling the right story? Not just with Noah, not just with the flood, but with our lives. And listen, I'm not advocating that we (laughs) redo our kids' curriculum to include pictures of of dead bodies when Noah and his family disembark. but but that's the reality of the picture that the Bible gives. So friends, the problem with the sanitized, sort of flannel graph version where it's nothing but rainbows and salvation is that it doesn't tell the whole story. It doesn't teach about the seriousness of sin. In Noah's day, And in ours. The whole story of Noah's Ark isn't just rainbows. It's that we deserve to have been at the bottom of that flood. Which means if we're going to read the Bible rightly and grow into mature adults and men and women who hear the Word of God rightly, we need to grow up and learn to tell the real story. And if we listen closely enough, if we listen closely enough, so what the Bible says about the flood, we'll hear our own story. The story of the flood starts back in Genesis 6. Look there with me if you haven't gotten there yet. We're going to look at Genesis 6, 5 through 8, spend some time there, uh, some in-depth time there, and then we're going to jump ahead to the basic story of the first part of the flood. It says this in 6, 5 through 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a profound verse. Verse five is as damning a statement as you will find about the human heart. It's a statement that's repeated a few times here and there throughout Scripture. This Statement here in verse 5 is the unsanitized adult version of the truth about the human heart. The Lord saw, it says, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The world was comprised of nothing but walking dead spiritual zombies. And verse five here in Genesis six is sweeping language that is meant to include everyone. Scripture says things like this all over the place. Isaiah fifty three, six says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Second Chronicles six, twenty six says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Micah 7.2 says the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. Romans 3.9-12 says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, quoting the Psalms, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says all upright. have fallen short of the glory of God. Mark seven twenty one to 22 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 say, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The unsanitized truth, according to the scriptures, is that the human heart is wicked. We must remember this, especially when we come to a verse like verse six. That it gives hard truth that we don't like. Now notice here in Genesis how, how, how it contrasts the heart of man that we just talked about in verse 5 with the heart of God in verse 6. In fact, if you're a circler or an underliner, you may want to circle that phrase, his heart, in verse 6, and draw an arrow to his heart in verse 5. At least in my version, those two are put together on purpose to show the contrast Between the wickedness of the human heart and the uprightness and perfection and holiness and goodness and the motivation that is entirely pure that makes up God's heart. That helps us understand the contrast that Genesis is making between verses 5 and 6. Verse 6 says this, God looking at the wickedness of man, verse 6 says, The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now briefly, because we don't have time to, uh, <laughs> to answer all of the issues here, we could spend a couple sermons on, on just these couple of verses here. The Lord is looking upon the earth and He is finding nothing but wickedness and hearts that are bent on rebellion. His heart sees that and is broken, it says it is grieved. He is full of sorrow because of the wickedness of humanity. And where it says the Lord regretted, or uh, most versions say, or was sorry, where it says the Lord regretted or was sorry that He made man, this is not the same regret or sorrow we feel when we realize that we have made a mistake. That's the frame of reference we have for regret and sorrow. We must not impose sinful human characteristics on a sinless supernatural God. When we say we are sorry about something, what we mean is, I wish I hadn't done that. But because God doesn't make mistakes, verse 6 is not a picture of God wringing his hands over a bad decision. It is a picture of God who is full of righteous sorrow because of the wickedness of humans. First Samuel 15, 29 says, God is not a man that he should have regret in the way man does. So God's regret here, his sorrow here, is the emotion of loss or disappointment. If the real word nerds are going to go look up the etymology of the word regret, It used to be just loss or disappointment without the element of human caprice put in the mix. So in this verse here, we mustn't impose, we mustn't impose a a sinful human characteristic on a sinless supernatural God. So here's a brief and clear way to say it. in Just one little sentence here. God's wrath is not the same as human revenge. God's wrath is not the same as human revenge. The unsanitized facts of the Bible are that God judges sin with just wrath. The unsanitized facts of the Bible are that God judges sin with His just wrath. You may not like it, but that is the unsanitized adult version of of the matter. We, all of us, and we didn't read all the scriptures, it goes on and on, deserve His punishment. So, in this circumstance here, in Genesis 6, God looks over the world and the wickedness of humanity is, is enough to fill Him with grief. So, verse 7, verse 7, He disciplines he disciplines with judgment. Verse 7 here foretells the flood as God's judgment against sin. So it says this, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then it says this, verse 8. I love the beginning of this here. Verse 8. But Noah found favor In the eyes of God. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Verse 8 here is not about Noah being good enough to deserve God's favor. But it's about God being gracious. If you look closely at verse 8, and the KJV has it this way. It says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The KJV says that Noah found grace. That word here for favor is the same exact word we translate in a bunch of other places as grace. The Hebrew word here is translated the same way in various places. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't that Noah's righteousness deserved God's gracious response. Scripture calls him righteous, but it's because he found that in God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't that Noah's righteousness deserved God's gracious response. Sometimes we come into the text and we think, well, God saved Noah because he was righteous, right? Like, he deserved it. (laughs) What other parts of Scripture come along to tell anyone that they deserve the grace of God? You're going to have to do a whole lot of explaining from a bunch of places that aren't actually in Scripture to come back to the story of Noah's Ark and say, Noah deserved it. He was righteous. Like God is righteous. That's what you'd have to prove. So don't impose all this way that we tell the story of our lives on the text. Are are you you reading where we're headed here? Noah's righteousness was because God gave it to him. It wasn't that Noah's righteousness deserved God's gracious response. It was that God's grace was His natural response to the relationship between Noah and God. That's how the Bible frames it. In Genesis 6-9, In the next verse, Scripture calls Noah a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It says he walked with God. Noah wasn't righteous because he was perfect. He was righteous because he had a relationship with God. So Noah and his family were saved while God was judging sin through the flood. Noah and his family were saved while God was judging sin through the flood. Look at verses eleven and twelve here, in uh, chapter seven. We're going to pick it up a little bit more here. It says this in seven eleven. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven. This may be a reminder from last week. When windows of the heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Last week we talked about we talked about how the Rakia. Dome, sweet dome to me. The Raqia, R-A-Q-I-A. You can go back and hear it from last week's sermon if you want. The rockia held back the waters. Now, they've opened back up again. And so have the fountains of the great and scary deep. <laughs> so the space that God had made between the dome and the sea is going to fill up with water again. So there will be no place... For life to happen. And all of the Jews would be thalassophobes. You see last week's sermon. So now we're going to cover a lot of ground here in uh, Genesis 6. Most of it without a whole lot of comment. A little bit here and there. But I want you to notice something as we read this scripture. Notice something important as we read through. God is the actor Noah submits. God is the actor Noah and his family are passive recipients of. And submit to the action of God. It's all over the text this way. Everything that happens in the text is completely dependent upon God's action. The boat doesn't have a rudder. There are no sails. They have no maps. There's no GPS. Everything that happens to Noah and his family is entirely dependent upon the action of God in this flood. Noah simply obeys. In fact, if you'll notice, he doesn't even talk at all. Throughout this whole account, he is silent while God acts. This is a picture for us in lots of ways of our story. Noah's response is total submission to God's judgment. Pick up at verse 13. We'll hop around just a little bit here. It says this in verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons, With them entered the ark. And a bunch of animals too. Jump to verse 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. Notice God's action. The Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days in the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. Notice the sort of passivity of that action there. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated. More passivity, submission to God's control there. It didn't sail. There was no engine. There was no rudder. The ark floated on the face of the waters, verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, which is a picture of total devastation. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, which is about 22 and a half feet high, just a little bit higher than two basketball goals, probably from here about halfway up to the top, of our ceiling here today. So verse 21, all flesh died that move on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left And those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's stop there. This is the part of the story we like to leave out. (laughs) There was total devastation. Which is to say, apparently, the wickedness of sin is serious enough that it deserves to be wiped away. Simply put, our sin is fundamentally worthy of God's just judgment against it. That's the real adult, unsanitized version of the first half of the flood that we like to sort of conveniently (laughs) skip over. Funny how, isn't it? In the story of Noah's Ark, (laughs) we never see ourselves as those who deserve to be at the bottom of the floods, do we? We always see ourselves as Noah. I remember as a kid thinking, I'm on the boat. I've always been on the boat. It seems like we're always in the ark looking down at the water when the reality of the circumstances of our lives pre-Jesus is that each one of us should be in the water looking up at the ark. Do not miss one's own story in this. So my question is, are you telling the right story about your life? So many of us keep telling the anesthetized version of our own stories as if we got to where we are because we're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like us. Like, like we are enough in ourselves. That's, that's what we tell ourselves, isn't it? And let's be real about the story we often tell about ourselves, to ourselves, and to others. And friends, the telling of the story as if your life is nothing but rainbows is a half-truth. And it does no one any good. In fact, it can end up making you a fraud and distance you from other people. It can distance you from the reality of who God said you were. Which affects how we see who God says we are. So, so what's all this got to do with baptism? Baptism. <laughs> In this series, we're talking about baptism as a picture of the reality of God's work in the world and in our lives. We're talking about the reality of God's work in the world and in our lives. And baptism is a picture of that. It's a picture of the transition from death to life. It's a picture of the transition from death to life. And it's real easy to see that picture even of baptism as something that's just we're on the ark coming up for air. Rainbows and life. That's good. That's called good news. But it's good because there was bad news. And it doesn't do any good to pretend that you were never bad. You hardly know that from which you're saved if you're only telling a sanitized version of your own life. You're lying to yourself and to everyone around you. And in this series, we're talking about baptism as a picture of the reality of God's work in the world and in our lives because it's a picture of the transition from death to life. First Peter 3 is a cool passage. You can look that up later. First Peter 3, 20 and 21 especially In the middle of that passage there. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 talk about how the ark brought Noah safely through water from death to life and how baptism does the same thing because it's a picture of the transition from death to life. Romans 6, 3 and 4 is a great passage for this too. We're going to put this on screen for you here. It's a good picture of, of baptism as a transition from death to life. It says this, Do you not know That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death as the condemnation for our sins. He took that on for us. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friends, baptism isn't just a one-time dunking ceremony to satisfy some church's condition to become part of it, though it is that. It is a picture of the transition from death to life. In the New Testament, if you've been baptized, it's because you're saying publicly, I follow Jesus because he raised me from when I was dead. So the question is, are you telling the story of your life in a way that acknowledges that you were dead? Are you telling the story of your life in a way that acknowledges you were dead? Because we Christians are amazingly good at telling the Noah's Ark anesthetized, sanitized version of where we've been. That does nobody any good. Does nobody any good. Baptism, in fact, can can correct the incorrect stories we tell about ourselves. It can tell us where we've come from, who we were, what we have now in Christ. I have a minister friend who uh, had a good friend who was dying from a a tumor in her spinal cord. They had tried all kinds of numerous surgeries, um, but nothing worked. There was no hope. She was destined to... To die, And as he was meeting with her, uh, he knew that she hadn't publicly given herself to Christ in baptism. And so he asked, have you thought about baptism? And she said, I'm afraid that if I do it, it'd be like I'm giving up. And he said, that's exactly what you're doing. That's exactly what you're doing. You're giving up. You're acknowledging that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Friends, it sounds extreme. But in the waters of baptism, you are acknowledging that you should have been kept down to die. That is the real story of our past. Baptism is a symbol of of God acting and us submitting to the story that He tells us about who we really are. (laughs) And listen, here's the cool thing. Here's Here's the cool thing about baptism. Instead of eternal spiritual death, we just go under and come back up. I mean, I know it sounds a little simplistic to say, but I do mean this. Instead of death which is what we deserve, we get a symbol of baptism. The sheer mechanics of the ceremony is that baptism is being plunged under the water in a way that pictures what we deserve. And baptism and the flood help us tell that right story. We deserve to be at the bottom of the water. What's so great about baptism is that instead of eternal spiritual death, we get baptism. Which pictures all that it means to make the transition from death to life. There's a cool little story about a baptism of a king. St. Patrick baptized a king in the 5th century named King Angus. A-E-N-G-U-S. And there was some point during the ceremony... When St. Patrick leaned on his staff, it was sort of a sharply pointed staff, and without even being aware, he inadvertently stabbed the king's foot. After the baptism was over, St. Patrick looks down and realizes what he'd done and sees this pool of blood and, and, and of course, begged for the king's forgiveness. He said, why did you suffer in this pain in silence? The king just said, "I, I, I just thought it was part of the ritual. Now listen, the ritual is we let you come back up. You're not going to be stabbed in the foot. There may be some, some intimidation about this because it's public. You may be intimidated by the idea of going under the water in front of everyone, but I promise we don't stab your feet and we always bring you back up, which is to say in the transition from death to life, you're allowed to come back up for air. And like the unsanitized version of the flood, it helps us tell the right story about our lives. Maybe it's time for one of us to begin to tell the right story of our lives. Baptism's a great way to do that. Let's pray together, friends.